Hi, I'm Alex Leon, activist, writer, and campaigner, and I'm just about coping. I'm Simon Blake, and this is Just About Coping. Last week, I spoke to Ruby Wax, and this week, my second guest on Just About Coping is journalist, campaigner, and activist, Alexander Leon. Featured in The Guardian, BBC News, The Independent, and Pink News, he describes himself as an LGBT+, anti-racism, and mental health awareness activist. In the daytime, Alexander works for the Kaleidoscope Trust, which is a leading charity working to uphold and advance human rights and equality for lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people internationally. Alex and I had a fantastic conversation about his experience as a gay man, about his ethnic identity, about prejudice, about racism, about activism, about mental health and well-being. If those topics are things you're interested in, then I think you're going to enjoy this one. Um, so, Alex, I am going to start with uh, asking you a bit about how you describe yourself. So you describe yourself as an LGBT plus anti-racism mental health awareness activist in your Twitter yeah. bio. Um, do you want to say a little bit more about why those are the words you use to describe yourself? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's really hard because I think, I mean, this is a completely different point, but it's sometimes quite strange that I have to self-identify as an activist. It took me a long time to feel comfortable in that word it's quite a bizarre word to kind of self-describe as like oh I'm activist like what are you doing are you on the street are you holding a placard whatever I guess when it comes to I think that description of me is like the distillation of things that I'm interested in right so there's obviously some parts of those are my identity so I'm gay so I'm kind of under the LGBT umbrella um, and I do a lot of work campaigning on uh, issues and writing and speaking about issues that involve being gay essentially um, but also kind of uh, the LGBT movement, the politics of the LGBT movement, um, health in the LGBT movement. Um, and then also looking really specifically, and this is, I guess, where the anti-racism thing comes in, um, what it means to be gay and brown, which is how I would self-identify, amongst many other things. Um, and the intersections between what it's like to live a life where you are uh, subject to racism, as well as being subject to homophobia, and how you navigate the experience of kind of dealing with both of those at the same time. How that links into mental health awareness or mental health generally is that, uh, as you can probably imagine, navigating those two things at the same time can have a pretty massive effect on your mental health or on your well-being if you're constantly um, navigating uh, spaces and rooms um, and uh, contexts in which people are kind of throwing that at you. It's not always easy to necessarily be kind to yourself. Um, and to make space for your own well-being and care. So that's the very long-winded version of me uh, <laughs> talking about how I identify and how I um, speak about myself online. And I'm really, that's, thank you. And I guess what I'd be really interested in is to talk, yeah, what does it mean to be an activist to you, having claimed it, having yeah. owned it, what does it, what does it actually mean? I don't really know if I'm, if I'm perfectly honest. I think it's just that I, I identified as an advocate for a long time because I felt that um, advocating for the issues that I cared about were things that I did in my spare time. So there were things that I tried really hard to um, find time and energy to do. Um, but now I think I think the main reason that I call myself an activist is that it's sort of my entire life. I mean, I work for uh, an LGBT human rights organization and literally almost every ounce of my spare time, and we'll talk about self-care in a second, but almost every ounce of my spare time is spent reading and writing um, and developing campaigns with other organizations um, and really fighting for the issues that fit uh, underneath the umbrellas that I'm passionate about. 
But I don't know, what is an activist? I think the definition has changed probably quite a lot. And I also find that sometimes I'm struck by people who self-identify as activists that I'm not necessarily sure that I would myself call an activist, if that makes sense. I think sometimes we are erring into this idea that having a social media account where you post a selfie and then underneath the selfie you're like, oh, gay rights, um, despite being lovely, uh, isn't necessarily a form of activism. So I think, interestingly, we're actually caught in a conversation which doesn't really have an answer. I don't really know what an activist is, but I kind of hope that the work that I do uh, and the things that I put out into the world are leading to positive change. And so I guess that, in my mind, constitutes change constitutes activism, sort of, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that is what activism is about, yeah, isn't it? About creating, creating change. And I, I guess one of the first times that I ever um, heard something that you uh, had done was your YouTube video about oh, yeah. the black and brown stripe uh, on the pride uh, flag. And I, you know, that, to me, is very clearly activism. You're oh, saying, cool. you know, it's, uh, uh, you, you need to get a grip. You need to think about and understand yeah. these issues and how it impacts on on people's well-being and I guess you know just using that as an example of something which you care about you talk mm. about you know experiencing racism and experiencing mm. homophobia uh, yourself and about the impact of that on well-being can you what did it feel like when you saw people outrage about these stripes on on the flag I mean I wish I could say I was surprised um, but I wasn't I think it was, it was actually quite, um, when I was making that video, I mean, I spent an entire weekend writing a script. I mean, I'd been thinking about it for a long time and then I thought I need to put my thoughts into action. Writing a script, filming, editing. Um, and I actually had a point when I was writing the script where I began to sort of break down, like really break down uh, crying. And I think the reason was that I realized that I wasn't even surprised. I wasn't, you know, I'd seen all this kind of, anger and vitriol around the fact that um, the brown and black striped flag was going to take over the original pride flag and that and all this kind of like hullabaloo about something which didn't feel to me like anything controversial. I mean, the flag exists in order to give people uh, who are people of colour and LGBT plus a, a, a symbol, like a, a symbol just to acknowledge our existence. And the fact that people were getting so worked up over its existence was actually quite upsetting to me but at the same time I wasn't surprised there's a kind of resignation that comes with um, having to deal sometimes with the same people telling you the same thing over and over and over i.e you know even any kind of symbol of your existence is somehow affronting to me or somehow um, taking up space in my world um, that being said I found the video a very empowering piece of work to do because it allowed me to vocalize my thoughts um, and it allowed me to kind of work through, I guess, that resignation and turn that resignation into something a bit more productive, which was, um, I guess, a conversation. So two Asians, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, turn that resignation into a conversation. I need to, talk, I need to work in politics or something. Um, <laughs> that is brilliant. Um, but, yeah, I guess it was, it was hard, but it was... I've gotten to a place now where I at least feel like I've contributed towards um, the kind of plethora of things out there that are people trying to educate on what that flag means um, and on what um, what purpose it has for the people that it's for um, and I had a fairly good response actually I was really I was actually really taken aback by the response because I didn't think it was going to um, have the impact that it did have and obviously I was very grateful and thankful that it did because it meant that people were listening um, 
from the horse's mouth, right? So yeah. they were getting it from people who it was most affecting. Yeah. And I think that's really important um, rather than many of the wonderful allies that we have sort of trying to fight on our behalf, which is still important. Sometimes it's good to just be like, here's someone who's affected by it, talking about why they think it's important, done. Yeah. So. Yeah. And investing a huge amount of emotional labor in that process. Indeed, indeed, and, yeah. Uh, and really um, doing, but I think, yeah, it's, so it must, I guess, yeah, for those people who don't know, this was um, a brown and black stripe being added to the rainbow flag, which symbolizes pride, which uh, first adopted in Philadelphia. Um, and in a fairly short time from Alex being one of the first people to um, to talk out about why including it was important that I saw certainly and, and um, uh, in the UK to it actually being uh, then part of the London Pride March. I've been really struck by it actually that Manchester Pride decided that they I mean the whole reason the conversation came up again because you're right it was in Philadelphia in 2017 a whole reason the conversation came up again and the whole reason I was compelled to do the video was that Manchester Pride said we're going to make this our flag but when I was in Pride in London this year I mean I don't know about you everywhere everywhere i saw brown and black striped flags and i thought wow like to go from what seemed like a really contentious and difficult and crunchy and and at some points quite um unkind debate around this mm -hmm. to everyone just deciding that this is the most inclusive and lovely thing to do to kind of acknowledge that racism is a problem within our community and to kind of show support i thought that was an amazing turnaround almost suspicious i was like <laughs> who's we talking to who this is great yeah. but you're right it's kind of become a lot more commonplace now which i think is a good thing yeah absolutely and i guess you know the the really interesting bit of course was amber hikes who was behind it in philadelphia also experienced you know some of the the backlash yeah. and yeah that massive shift and then also that that turning point yeah and um, i so just going on to the um, the sort of emotional labour and the the resignation mm. uh, becoming a, a conversation, um, you talked about your working life being um, very much about LGBT rights. You talked about your waking hours being yeah. connected into you know, mental health, to anti-racism, to LGBT uh, movements. When where do you um, escape from some of that in order to replenish yourself to recover from? with the resignation yeah. to know the next bit. The listeners can't see this, but I'm beaming because I had this exact conversation with my mum last week who very indignantly was like, Alex, I love you and you're doing a great job. Do you do anything besides LGBT rights? And I was like, oh, that's a really good point. Um, it's, it's a good question. It's a really good question. And I actually think it's a really pertinent question for anyone working in in any kind of change making or any kind of activism or anything that um, where they feel that their work um, you know, connects with their sense of social justice or or their identity or whatever, you know, it, it's important to have that time and space um, outside of the issues. I go to therapy. I mean, I don't go to therapy in order to not be involved in LGBT things. In fact, a lot of the time I'm talking about my LGBT kind of um, themed life. Um, but therapy is one of the things that I do. I think it's really uh, important. It gives me time and space to just kind of I guess come back to sort of sometimes it's also just coming back to why I'm doing it sometimes the therapeutic space gives me that is that I can kind of take a big step back away from getting involved in the minutiae of everything that I'm involved in and kind of think how am I actually feeling what am I doing and what's my brain saying to me at the moment um, I meditate fairly often I wouldn't say that I meditate every day I'd like to say that I meditate every day but I live in London and everyone is running around like a bloody 
I was going to say horse on fire. That's absolutely not the expression. Uh, like a house on fire. Um, I have a terrible habit of getting expressions wrong. Horse on fire is one of the most graphic. Um, so yeah, I, I try and meditate fairly often. And when I can't meditate, I at least try and um, I do kind of like, I don't know what you would call it actually. I've never really had to describe it, but maybe like mindful listening. So I'll just listen to the sounds around me and try and tune out of my own thoughts. Um, and also, and I think quite importantly, I have really deliberately um, pursued meaningful friendships, actually, which might sound a bit strange. You don't really often think of your like interpersonal relationships as a form of care or self-care or, or, or giving yourself time and space to kind of chill out. But I think it's actually something really, there's been something really rewarding for me in um, developing uh, friendships where I've been really upfront with my kind of wants and needs. Um, and cultivating a very intimate and, I guess, loving friendship um, with people who I feel like I can rely upon in the same way that I would a family member or than I would with a significant other in a yeah. romantic sense. Um, and I actually find that a lot of my space and time away from from the the noise in my head comes from those relationships and comes from the validation that 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 is involved in in reaching out to people and hearing about their lives and caring about their lives and showing that kind of mutual care um and that's probably for me the biggest one i have some really i'm really lucky to have some really lovely friends who i can be 100 percent myself with and who i can be vulnerable around which i think is actually difficult for a lot of us myself included right yeah um so yeah, I try and meditate. What did I say? I've already forgotten. I try and meditate. I go to therapy and I just have great relationships that I invest in yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, you, uh, I read an article which you had written uh, or had been written about you with your permission and your, you being interviewed right. the other day where you talked um, a lot about being kind to yourself and yeah. to, to others um, and not forgetting to laugh. Uh, and I guess, uh, you yeah, know, just be interested to pick up on, on that a little bit more you you talk about you know without kindness we can't go anywhere yeah yeah you know, just tell us a bit more about that yeah i think the i think the kind of obsession that i have with kindness because it, it is an obsession i find myself thinking about whether i'm being kind or not all the time comes from a place of having not been taught to be kind to myself right so as an adult i've had to kind of look back and part of this has been through therapy and part of this has been through reading up on the issues around sort of queer politics and and um, queer psychology and things like that and realizing that I kind of grew up in a world where I was constantly internalizing um, ideas around myself that were not kind right uh, whether that was because I was the only brown boy in my class whether that was because I was the only gay kid in my class you know irrespective of what it was I think that my childhood was a was a barrage you know kind of resisting and trying to hold fast in a barrage of of what was a lot of kind of societal pressure for me to think that I wasn't enough or that I wasn't good enough. And so I have kind of stumbled through my adolescence and my adulthood having to train myself to, from really what felt like from sub-zero, right, to train myself to be actively kind to myself. And I'm certainly not at a point now where, sometimes it's funny because I talk about mental health so much that I think people think that I've got all the answers and I don't, right? I'm, I'm very frequently unkind to myself and having to stop take a big step back, contextualize, reach out to my friends and, and they help me to kind of re-understand, uh, re not really a word, but they help me to kind of figure out um, uh, my own worth again, right? But I think, I think I realized the people that I 
that I have admired the most and that I value the most have been people that have been unfailingly kind even when it's really difficult for them to be mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and I think there's a real strength and a resilience that comes from people who you know maybe someone's wronged them or maybe someone's done something really bad to them but they still find forgiveness and in forgiveness I think is kindness yeah. right in yeah. underlying forgiveness as a concept is kindness because you're allowing that person to you're kind of you know letting go of any of the resentment or anger that you might feel so I think for me yeah it's just it's just such a simple life philosophy mm-hmm. and you know I can't say that I'm at 100% killing it you know 10 out of 10 kindness all the time but I just think that if you fall back on that am I being kind right now yeah. it kind of it, for, for me it keeps me in check because often I'm not right sometimes I'm like oh yeah, fuck. and then I have to sort of take a big step back and think actually that's probably not kind why am I not being kind and then it's kind of like a gateway through which I can then interrogate maybe some of my own feelings or thoughts mm-hmm. um but yeah how do you feel about kindness? Um, I have a postcard. Justin, that corner says, kindness is power. Uh-huh. I think it's uh, one of the, um, and interestingly, of course, photos of horses. So the idea of horses on fire is also <laughs> something. <laughs> I did see you shut up. Yeah, whoops. <laughs> Got it um, kicked out. Right? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think it is, I think it's absolutely um, true that one of the hardest things to be sometimes is kind to yourself. Um, and, you know, having you know, grown up as a gay man, uh, and and absorbed all sorts of reasons why you are not good enough. Yeah, yeah I, I completely um, empathise with that. But I also think the pace at which we process information and get um, inputs can sometimes just mean that you you do have to actually say what's the the right yeah. response here rather than what is my automatic response. And of course, your new exec director, I think, probably yeah. role models kindness. In, yeah, totally, uh, Phil. Uh, um, yeah, just role models it in all mm. sorts of situations. Mm. So um, lucky you. Yeah, very lucky. <laughs> you make a really good point about the pragmatism of kindness because I think you're right. You know, we can't all be holding hands, singing kumbaya, looking at the flowers every day, right? And I don't think any of us. Well, I mean, there are people, but I don't think many of us purport to to live a life that way. I think sometimes you sort of do have to be a bit unkind, mm. or sometimes you can't be kind, um, and that's also okay. Talking about, I mean, one of the things that just struck me when you were talking is when I first moved to London, so I'm from, if you haven't heard my janky accent, I'm from Australia, I'm from Sydney. And um, one of the things that first struck me when I moved to London was the kind of, um, I guess, what's what's the opposite of, kind of coldness and distance that a lot of people um, place on strangers operating in kind of central spaces. And I, I, I get that, right? Sydney is not a small town, there is plenty of people, but I was struck by how little people were able to give to each other off the bat. Mm-hmm. One of the things I love about Australia, I mean, it's it's you know it's smaller. It's not physically smaller, but it's smaller in mentality, let's say, um, and a bit parochial and a bit kind of country townish. But I do like striking up conversation with strangers, like at the supermarket. Oh, hey, John, how you going? You know, I love that because I think that that's a sign of kind of shared common humanity. And I was really struck when I first went to London. I was like, this is insane. People don't even look at each other. But then since becoming a quote unquote Londoner, I kind of get it now because. There is a pragmatism to you can't be, you cannot possibly give 100% of yourself to everyone all the time because then what happens to you? You deplete yourself of your own, of your own sort of love and care. Um, And one of the things that I find that a lot of uh, queer people suffer from, which is, I guess, tangentially related to this, is that I know a lot of queer people who are are really kind. They're really, really kind. 
but they don't allow for that kind of 10, 20, 30% of kindness to stay in their tank, to absorb into themselves. They just give and they give and they give and they give and they push their kindness onto others, often to great benefit of the other people, but they don't allow any of it to kind of sink in. And if you don't allow any of it to sink in, that kindness is kind of empty, right? It doesn't come from a place, it doesn't come from a solid foundation, it comes from a shakier one. So there is a pragmatism to kindness. It's not... It's not um, as easy as just like be lovely to everyone all the time. You can't, right? You just can't. <laughs> yeah. So, well, yeah. But you can also do some um, really difficult things, but with kindness. Yeah. And so it, I think there's, there's that bit, isn't there, which is um, being kind and looking through a prism of kindness does not mean never making difficult decisions or having difficult conversations. Yeah. It just means I remember doing a training course um, uh, where we often talk about confidentiality and you know, challenges, but basically someone just said, um, the best way of describing this is look at each other with kind eyes for the next five days and we'll be fine. Mm. Yeah, and it's like, actually, that's you know, probably one of the, the best ways of, of thinking around some of that. Yeah. You talked about Australia, yeah. about, uh, Sydney, and I, I so I grew up in, in Cornwall, but interested, um, when I was in Sydney for a month, I knew a lot of more people than I knew yeah. after nine, ten years in London. Yeah, yeah. it was really striking. Um, talked a bit about or you hinted towards masculinity mm-hmm. yeah and and i guess in in some ways uh australia and the uk have some similar totally uh traits around what they expect around gender yeah. and gender norms mm-hmm. do, you, do you just you know, any observations that you have around that mass that sense of masculinity where there are things that are the same things that might be different from and its impact on well-being i guess yeah i mean um, yeah, I, well, one of the things that I was really, so um, you referenced before a, a piece that was done um, by Colourful, who, who, who um, profile queer people of colour doing interesting and cool things, if I may so self-describe. Um, and one of the things that was I was really struck by in that conversation was we talked a lot about gender norms and gender roles. And when Dee, who's the interviewer, was asking me about, um, you know, when did you first knew you were gay? I had to really think about it because I actually didn't probably know until I was, you know, if you, if you take gay to mean like same sex attracted, I probably didn't really realize that until I was kind of 10, 11, 12. But much earlier than that, I realized that I kind of didn't fit in or I didn't belong. And that was to do with the expectations placed on me because of my gender, right? Mm-hmm. So I have this very kind of vivid memory of walking around the playground and not wanting to play with the boys because they were kind of playing handball or something. And I was like, I don't really want to do that. But knowing that I probably shouldn't play with the girls, right? And I'm like five at this age. Mm -hmm. And knowing that maybe that's not the right thing to do and maybe that's not what's expected of me in a very simplistic way. Um, And that also, I think that sort of, that speaks to at least um, how often the idea of being uh, actually LGBT or LGBT plus is kind of... um, mixed up in or related to gender as, you know, gender conformingness, conforming to your gender, mm. whether you're trans or not. I think a lot of, um, you know, butch lesbian women, a lot of effeminate gay men have to really grapple with um, the expectations placed upon them by their gender and how they kind of resist against those um, without dealing with a whole barrage of just stuff. I was going to say a rude word, just bad stuff, right? Um, as for whether Australia is any different to the UK, I think, yeah, I think 
it's really hard for me to know because I think I've lived different periods of my life in the different countries and I think I really grew up around some really traditional understandings of what masculinity means. Funnily enough, not from my father. My father's quite, I mean, there are, there are some kind of pillars of masculinity that he definitely kind of stands by. He's very stoic and he's very unemotional, but he certainly didn't um, conform to a lot of stereotypes simply because he wasn't a white man. And so he had a slightly different understanding of his masculinity based on kind of his cultural touch points, I think. Um, but also he was very, he is very spiritual. Uh, he's a massage therapist and a yoga teacher and doing all these things, which I think in, in Western culture might sort of, well, I don't know, it's hard. I'm trying to think of the last yoga class I went to and how many men were in there. You know, a lot of these kind of spiritual spirituality seems to be um, often understood as kind of a more female um, thing, which I think is quite bizarre, actually, if you think about things like the Dalai Lama, but whatever. One of the things that I'm really struck by, and I'm struck by this because I, I experience it and continue to experience it, and a lot of my male friends have the same thing is, and I don't know if you will, if you will relate to this, is that I think as men, we're taught to be unemotional and stoic. And so when we're in need of um, emotional support or, or um, desperate to kind of emotionally express, we find ways of kind of holding it all in, right? Um, and I think that is genuinely one of the most damaging um, uh, expectations that we could place on actually any human being. If you think about it, you know, your, your ability to emotionally express or your ability to have kind of that self-awareness of your own emotions is one of the things that makes us distinctly human. And then to turn around and police it and to say, but actually you're not allowed to let out that feeling in X, Y, Z situation, or you have to go around the corner if you want to cry, or you have to, you know, to kind of place limitations on that. It's actually, you know, of course it's profoundly damaging, right? Um, and it would seem, unfortunately, and I guess this would be possibly reflected in, in, in statistics around suicide, that, you know, men, men do suffer more from, those, from the consequences of those expectations um, and often don't feel that they have the route to, um, to solve, to, to make that better, right? Which is, I would say, anecdotally, so often why, um, you know, the, the rates of, of suicide amongst men seem to be higher than the rates amongst women. I think it's because we don't get told or taught how to emotionally express. We don't get told or taught how to be open and to let go. We always get taught that you have to hold it all in. So there is definitely a very profound link, I think, probably between gender expectations and masculinity as a kind of traditional masculinity as a concept um, and, and and mental health and well-being. Mm. Um, and I, I guess if you were to just then think about some of, that experience and the experience of racism mm -hmm. and and how you that have processed some of that as an as an adult if you were you know, if you were talking to uh you know yourself i don't know how old you are but if you were talking to yourself 15 years or so ago you know, what when i was three I'm just <laughs> <laughs> that old yeah. <laughs> uh, if, if you were talking to yourself 15 years or so ago what what would that kind talk sound like you know i actually have been asked this question before and i really struggle to answer only because i think this comes down to my life philosophy i don't i think that in order for me to have gotten to the stage where i'm enormously grateful and lucky to be sitting here speaking to you as some kind of expert i mean i'm really not an expert at least when it comes to um, books i'm really an expert in my lived experience but as someone who has authority on this topic let's say um i couldn't have gotten to where i am without having gone through the 
the very difficult um, times that I went through as an adolescent and as an uh, as a young adult. I think that um, you know where where I to jump in the time machine and be able to go back. I don't know that there's anything that I would have been able to say to say you know I think. I kind of had to get to where I am now in order for do you know what I mean? But I think one of the things that has been the most empowering for me is understanding that a lot of the a lot of the difficulties that I faced in accepting who I am and being able to kind of fully uh, fully kind of use and fill out the space of, of what it means to be Alex Leon, what it means to be a queer person of colour, what all of that means, um, has been in understanding that that um, it's not my fault, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the time, you know, m- moving through my life, I thought that, that experiencing homophobia was my fault, experiencing racism was my fault. Even after I came out of the closet and I was in sort of gay nightlife spaces and being either just dealing with straight up, you know, proper, angry, rude racism or dealing with things like fetishization, which are kind of more insidious and subtle forms of racism. I still thought, even when I was like in my early 20s, like, but this is on me, like this is up to me and this is because of me. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons that I really like the word intersectionality beyond it being a really important word to understand the experiences of people that sit on intersections of marginalized identities was that it gave it gave kind of formality and um what's the word it gave a kind of realness to an experience i had always felt and it made me understand that i was although i was situated in the middle of it i wasn't causing it to happen you Mm. know that that discrimination can be institutionalized and that it can be structural and that it can be systemic and that it's not up to me, one human being, Alex Leon, navigating through the world to solve it all or to fix it all or to make it all happen or not happen. Mm. So I think, you know, let's say I'm jumping the time machine, I think I would try and impart something along the lines of, you know, these things are happening to you, they're not making them happen and it's not your fault that they're happening. It's unfair that they're happening. It's yeah. really not fair. It's just not fair. But, um, but you know, there there is. I, I guess it's you know, there's. It's society. Yeah. It's not. It's not on you. That would probably be the thing that I'd try. And that so. just reminds me of um, Matthew Todd in yeah. the book Straight Jacket, which is, um, yeah, that sense of uh, when you're being told it's you and you're trying to get away from you and you can't. Yeah. Yeah. And that yeah. impact on well-being. Yeah. Yeah. Mental health. Massively. So. Massively. Really, really experience important. that still. I mean, I still have moments like that. Yeah, I think it's it's sort of. I think there is a there is again like a kind of unfairness to it. I guess sometimes I you know when I'm in my kind of deep dark kind of hole, I'm like this is unfair that I have to deal with this. It's not you know I happen to to grow up in a world that wasn't particularly kind to people who who look the way that I look and love the way that I love. Um, but yeah, I think for some reason I find it quite liberating to understand that although it's not particularly optimistic to think that it's kind of society's fault, it kind of at least takes the burden off yourself, right? You're like, this didn't come from me. Um, And it sucks that I might have to kind of navigate the rest of my life doing it, but at least, you know, I don't know. At least you've got the starting point. Yeah, exactly. At least I understand how how I'm situated within this and what I can do and what I can't do. Um, So, uh, Utopia... If you were, if you were, we're not going to get there, but if you had a magic wand that would give you one thing to try and um, create a a better world in terms of people's mental health, in terms of their well-being, what would you, 
What would you go for? I think this is a really easy one for me. I think it would come down to um, inclusive mental health services. I think were we to achieve mental health services in this country which were as inclusive as possible, I mean, looking beyond the fact that they need, probably need to be um, a bit more accessible, um, but I think, you know, it is becoming clearer and clearer that being a part of certain marginalized groups or being a part of multiple marginalized groups you know, really strongly affects or, or puts you at risk of poorer mental health. And so it seems quite strange to me that we've not, that's kind of not trickled down into our policy and how we, our policies, I should say, and how we envision um, mental health in this country. I think, you know, my utopia is one in which being, let's say, a black lesbian woman doesn't prevent you from feeling like you can go um, uh, and ask your GP for uh, therapy or for support with your mental health. And that you can go into the GP's office or let alone a, a, a psychotherapist's office or a counsel's office, knowing that that person is not necessarily going to judge you or come from a place of judgment um, based on factors that you can't control about yourself. Right. Yeah. So I think, you know, I don't necessarily know exactly how that happens. I'm not a policy wonk. I don't work for the government. Um, nor am I a lobbyist. But I think that there, <laughs> but maybe I should be all those, two, all those things. But I think... Um, there is something to be said for making these these services more accessible, but also just more inclusive. Because I, for example, you know, the therapy that I spoke about before, that's not on the NHS, yeah. because I felt it was really important for me to be able to go to someone who I didn't feel like I had to explain something very fundamental to me, which is my identity to. Um, and, you know, beyond the long waiting time, uh, it, it, that wasn't an option for me. So I'm very, very lucky in that I was able to put some money aside to pay for private therapy, but I'm really really aware of the fact that not everyone is so is so uh, lucky right so it's accessible then a price point definitely yeah, yeah. Um, and then inclusive uh, knowing that the person there is going to like you for who you are well not but, like but just not judge right like just not think or, or at least have a sense or an understanding of where you're coming from when you're talking about things like for example internalized homophobia right and i think this comes in part with you know queer people and people of color um taking up more room, taking up more space and um, being more involved in, in everything from every level is that we're going to get to a point, I think, where um, where psychotherapists are, 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 what's the word, compelled to, to be more aware about how marginal ident identities interact with someone's uh, well-being or mental health mm -hmm. because it will be part of the literature. It is already part of the literature, actually. I think it's just kind of, we're slowly getting to a point where people are understanding more uh, psychologists and psychotherapists are understanding how important um, these things are. So, yeah, just coming from a place of non-judgment and a place of expertise and knowledge, right? Rather than being like, oh, yeah, so you're saying that you don't like yourself because you're gay. Are you sure it wasn't about your parents? Like, I mean, fine, but, like, actually, I'm coming to you because I think that, I, you know, because I just came out of the closet or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Having that understanding. Okay. Yeah. Um, so um, I just have one uh, other question yeah. uh, for you uh, now. If you were to um, think about a time when you were at your happiest, when you were listening to music, what song were you, done, were you listening to? Oh, that's such a hard question. When I have to choose between things that I love, it's like, it's the paralysis of trying to choose. <laughs> you know what, I was, I'm actually going to say, so the song that I have loved the most recently and the artist that I've loved the most, and this is not someone that is particularly new to a lot of people, is Lizzo. I don't know if you've heard of Lizzo. Oh. 
Simon, mate, need to sort that out because Lizzo is incredible. So Lizzo is like what I would call self-help pop music. Okay. So her whole kind of message is about being empowered, um, being body positive, being confident and loving yourself. And those things all sound a bit strange to exist in a pop song or just at least exist in an album. Mm. But um, Lizzo has a bunch of really great songs. My favorite one is probably Juice, which is all about being incredible. It's it's just music that you're like, oh yeah, I am brilliant. And Lizzo did a really great concert recently, um, a Tiny Desk concert it was called, where she said something which I actually thought was really profound. Um, and don't forget her whole kind of mantra is around self-love. And she said, if you can love me, you can love yourself. And I thought that was incredible. I really thought that, but it was very simple, right? If you can, if you can pour all your love and energy and time and resource into into loving a band or into loving an artist, mm. then you have the capacity to love yourself, right? You've got all the tools there. You just got to turn the direction around and and face them towards yourself. So I think Lizzo is going to be revolutionary. I mean, we need more pop music, which is like not about heartbreak. You know what I mean? Everything's like, oh, my breakup was bad. I remember uh, when Free, Gay and Happy came out, which may age me uh, particularly. Yeah, I've I've never even heard of it. pop song when I was about (laughs) 20. uh, um, But yeah, it was like this uplifting uh, moment. Yeah. yeah. Um, Alex, thank you very much. Oh, it was such a pleasure. Love talking. Thanks for having me. So I hope you enjoyed our discussion. Really, really important to talk about the issues, the intersectionality between race, sexuality, identity, mental well-being, And I'm sure that there's lots more conversation that still needs to be had. Alex's social media channels are linked in the description and you can find out more about the Kaleidoscope Trust there too. Lastly, if you enjoyed Alex, please subscribe, leave us a rating and make sure to join the conversation on social media with the hashtag JAC podcast. I'm Simon Blake and thanks for coping with us. Yeah, I love great. doing stuff like this. <laughs> Just talking to the bloody cows go home. Is that an expression? I'm terrible with expressions. Cows go home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. cows say, don't have a go home. I was going to, uh, oh, <laughs> I, wait, where is a cow's home? Oh, they don't have one. Wow, that's actually quite deep. <laughs> <laughs>